In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, Palm Sunday for Christians is a rather schizophrenic holiday in the church calendar um, because we know that at the end of this week is Good Friday in which all of the notes will turn sour. The cheery hosannas uh, will become murderous death cries. And, and we know that the fresh leaves of Palm Sunday will turn brown and be thrown away. And so all of the jubilation of today seems false and untrue because of the looming shadow of the cross. Um, so it's right to feel a little bit ambivalent about the ideas communicated in the lessons and service. Um, but the, an interesting bit of information is that Jesus already understands and is deeply sensing this ambivalence. Uh, we know this from Luke's Palm Sunday account in which we see Jesus having a preemptive awareness of this ambivalence because for him, Palm Sunday itself, just itself, uh, involves both joy and deep hurt. And I want to speak today, this Palm Sunday, uh, about the exalted king with a cloven heart. And I hope that this brings God very close to our doorstep. We're, we're getting close to something very raw and true and powerful in this passage from Luke's Gospel. But before we get to the broken heart, we'll start with the exalted king. What I find fascinating about this passage is how deliberate, oddly deliberate, Jesus is about orchestrating his own entrance into the city, particularly uh, as it relates to the donkey. You notice that this text spends, a, well, about a third of the text is about the proper arrangement of a mule. I mean, that's a rather bizarre, uh, a bizarre detail that ought not to have the, pre the uh, prominence that it has. Um, but we, we know that Jesus chooses an animal, knows the location of that animal, and offers them a Jedi mind trick in case the people don't understand the importance of giving them the donkey. When they ask you about why you're taking our donkey, you are simply supposed to say, the Lord has need of it. <laughs> and all will be made well. Uh, and so there's a lot of details here about a mule. This is very interesting. Um, why? Well, many people assume that there are details here, and Jesus selects this animal because it will demonstrate to everyone his humility. He's not coming in as a conquering king. He's not coming in as Muhammad did to Medina on a charger. He's not being held aloft as the ancient popes were on a sedia gestatoria, you know, that thing, the chair with the poles where people lift you up and parade you around on a throne. Uh, he, he's not coming in that way. His, his um, coming is, is humble and, and meek. There's some truth to that, but this gesture, what Jesus is doing in this passage, is far more complex and meaningful than just that. And we know that because his gesture of riding into Jerusalem on a donkey has its roots uh, and memory in Old Testament practice. It goes back uh, to a scene between David and his son Solomon. Uh, David, as you know, in his dying uh, days was, was worried about the succession. Most monarchs are. 
who is going to take over after I die? Uh, and he wanted to secure his son Solomon as his rightful successor and the next king of Israel. And so David orchestrates a coronation ceremony, a very detailed coronation ceremony. And I will now read it unto you. This is from 1 Kings chapter 1. Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, went down and had Solomon ride on King David's donkey. There, Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon as king. Then they blew the trumpet, and all the people said, Long live King Solomon. And all the people went up after him, playing on pipes and rejoicing with great joy, so that the earth itself was split by their noise. You see the parallels in what's happening as Jesus is entering the city on a donkey. This same idea, that is, the monarch riding in on a beast of burden for his coronation, was uh, impressed upon the memory of an ancient prophet who lived after David, after Solomon. This prophet's name was Zechariah, and he was so impacted by this story and this ancient gesture that he said, looking into the future and prophesying about a time when another great king would come, that that king would make a similar entrance. This prophet said, Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey. And so we have someone in the past who entered the city for his coronation as king on a donkey, a prophet looking to the future about the same sort of event, and we have a growing expectation in the time of Jesus Christ that this great Messiah, this anointed one, this king, this politician priest, will come to us in an obvious way. He'll declare himself to us by this symbolic gesture of riding a donkey into town. It will be a way for all of us to know that finally the day of justice, judgment, reconciliation, and peace is here. It's how we'll know that God is finally returned to his people to help us. And remember, Jesus grew up with these stories. Jesus grew up with these prophecies. He was formed by them, shaped by them. And inside of him, inside his own psyche, he had this growing awareness that the king, modeled by Solomon, prophesied by Zechariah, that king was his very own self. He was going to be uh, the final anointed one brought to Israel. And so Jesus was so convinced that this was true that he orchestrated all of the details to make a bold statement to Israel and to the world. Now what surprises me about this is that that's so unlike Jesus of Nazareth. Believe it or not, while we do believe he was God incarnate, the Son of God, uh, the Lord of life, he tended to uh, be subtler in his ministry and not, in fact, clearly express his identity, even when asked. It's a remarkable thing about Jesus uh, that he had this sort of intentional mystification. Wouldn't it have been great if Jesus was like Aquinas or Calvin and had sort of a, a dogged, systematic theology like, and he, where he would come to us and say, now, I know, here's the thing. Um, I'm, I was born of a virgin, and here is what that means. 
Um, I, uh, I'm going to atone for your sins and um, justify you, but it's by faith, not by productivity, okay? So, and, and then, but it's more complicated, because, uh, because I'm only able to affect atonement because of my divine status. Oh, you don't understand that. That's because you don't understand the doctrine of the Trinity. Let's back up, and we'll go through systematics about Father, Son, and Holy... But we don't have this in Jesus. What do we have? We have a Galilean rabbi who goes around telling parables, and when asked why, he says, so no one will understand. And then when somebody is healed, and they're very excited about this deliverance that they've experienced, Jesus tells them, don't tell anybody that this happened. And then when somebody occasionally, like St. Peter, gets it right and understands that Jesus is in fact not just a prophet, but the Messiah, he tells Peter to shut up. Don't tell anybody. And so Jesus' pattern... Uh, scholars call this the messianic secret, Jesus tends to veil or obscure his identity rather than just blatantly claim um, his own divine nature or prerogatives. Except here, where Jesus makes a bold statement to Israel and the world that he is their king. He is our king. Um, No more mystery, no more silence we have uh, an official statement from the man himself. By the way, the crowd entirely understands what he's saying. Because they respond, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They're perfectly aware that what Jesus is doing uh, has a deep, profound, and wonderful meaning. And so we have an exalted king and a crowd who knows it. But this exalted king has a cloven heart cracked right down the middle. We know this only because of Luke's gospel. Luke tells us that as Jesus approaches the city and begins to see it, he starts to cry. No other gospel tells us that, but Luke does. This is what he says. And when Jesus drew near the city and saw it, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. The closer Jesus gets to the city, the more he breaks down, and the mood changes, changes dramatically. And notice something here. Jesus doesn't cry for himself, for his own loss, for his own forthcoming torture. He cries for everyone who does not know the time of God's visitation, who does not perceive in this great day something that the Lord is doing, who doesn't, people that don't understand why he has come. Uh, and he, he mourns for them. And then he predicts a gruesome future, which in fact comes to pass in 70 AD, when the Romans come in and mow the whole thing down. They burn the city. They destroy the temple. They take all of the implements of the temple and melt them down. The Romans win, and Israel ceases to exist until the 1940s. Unbelievable. And yet this is what he predicts. 
and what occurs. Now, it's an interesting bit here, because as Jesus was nearing the city, his followers were chanting in unison well-known words from their tradition. They come from Psalm 118. They were all able to say them together uh, because they grew up with these words. They grew up memorizing these words. It was like, it's like if you were to ask me to quote to you any lyrics from Aerosmith or Meatloaf, I would be able to do it in a heartbeat. Uh, because I had a very unsanctified youth. Instead of like reading the Bible, I was listening to really great rock and roll. By the way, you can do both, and it's perfectly legitimate. Um, uh, but they were, like, they were like, you know, really sanctified versions of Ethan Magnus, and maybe you, where they like read their Bibles. And they were all able to say the same thing. And what did they quote? They quoted a psalm that had messianic orientation. Messianic orientation. It was about God breaking into the world to fix things through a particularized monarch. And they're all shouting, blessed is that king who comes in the name of the Lord. The thing that they left out, that was actually more important for their purposes, was the very preceding verse. The verse that came right before the one they, one they quoted. And it's this, a jarring verse in the midst of Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. In the midst of this grand bojess of hope and expectation, we have a downer. That this very king upon whom God's restoration depends will be rejected by the people in charge. And the only person who seemed to connect the idea of kingly glory and great downfall was Jesus of Nazareth. He was the only one riding into town that day who knew uh, that this ticker tape parade would tune in, turn into a funeral procession. Um, and, and he, uh, knowing this, uh, marches toward the dark shadow of Calvary. And so we have in this text an exalted king with a cloven heart, a heart that breaks over those who do not understand his mission and whose palms um, um, that symbolize in some way not just a Messiah who comes to free us uh, from sin, but a Messiah that comes to free us from Roman occupancy, um, those, those palms uh, will later betray the very audience that holds them. So I, I want to leave us today with two phrases that I hope will stick with us from this Palm Sunday homily. Here are the two phrases. Jesus is Lord, and the Lord is Jesus. We'll get to that. Jesus is Lord, the exalted King. As Christians, uh, we, we do something rather dangerous, and some might even say seditious, as we gather on the first day of the week. Uh, we tend to not grapple, or I tend not to grapple, with the gravity of our claim uh, in the Christian creeds and the historic confessions. As Christians, we affirm a singular monarch and his particular kingdom above all others. I mean, essentially, we're all monarchists, you know. I used to joke that given uh, our current political landscape, I want to become a monarchist under the reign of Elizabeth II. Um, but being that that's probably not likely, uh, I, I have to fall back on the more spiritual but nevertheless more significant position of all Christians are really monarchists in the sense that we hold um, highest esteem and fealty to Jesus Christ as King of Kings and Lord of Lords because to no other person has it been said, 
all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Only Jesus has said that. And so um, this fact that we have a singular monarch puts our earthly kingdoms and politicians and our hopes and fears regarding those people in perspective. Friends, in this election cycle, I simply remind us all that the scepter of the universe is held in only one set of hands. And the person holding that scepter is not currently debating anyone. The debate is over. Uh, there is an Anglican bishop and theologian named N.T. Wright who, um, who once gave what I regard as an incomplete definition of the gospel, but what it says is true enough. Simply put, Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. Uh, the thing is, when our world leaders, in their character and in their actions, stand against the way of Christ, we stay with the way of Christ. For he is King of kings and Lord of lords and has no rival. A person that learned this and learned it the hard way was Karl Barth, the great Swiss theologian, who was coming to theological prominence as Nazism was rising in Germany. And he uh, was shocked and stunned that many of his uh, um, uh, contemporaries, uh, and back then what would have been called liberal theologians, were essentially signing, uh, um, signing an agreement with the Fuhrer of Germany saying that he represented uh, plans to make the world more perfect, more whole, uh, more strong. He represented the best of nationalism. Uh, but uh, Karl Barth, along with uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and others, had to say that the Fuhrer is not only wrong, but we have a Fuhrer above him. And therefore they, they would say, um, Jesus ist mein Fuhrer, right? Jesus is my Fuhrer. Jesus is my Lord. And his Lordship trumps the current Fuhrer's Lordship. And, and so we need to remember that we huddle around uh, a singular monarch with a single kingdom, and he has precedence and authority um, uh, in a way that trumps all others. But the second claim is just as important and certainly more consoling. We do, it's not just that Jesus is Lord, but our Lord is Jesus. Uh, it's important, an important point, because simply having a lord or a king or a general is, in and of itself, not particularly good news. Americans don't like having monarchs. The last time that we had one, where we told him where he could put his foreign tea. Uh, we, 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 don't, we don't tend to bow well to authority, um, particularly because we're used to having authorities that don't treat us very well. But the good news is not only that we have a new general that supplants the old general, but that our new general weeps for his rejectors, that our new general has a broken heart, that a new general is, is dying for a world that hates him and will reject him and doesn't want to have anything to do with him and still prays for them as he's dying. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Um, this is the good news of the Lord happening to be Jesus. It shows us that God is not a Vesuvius, but a mourner right with us. Or to get a little theological, it's not so much that Christ is godly, but that God is Christly. If you want to know who God is and what God is about in the world, look at the place where God looks most absent, which is at the shadow of the cross. That's what God is doing in the world. Or, put another way, the scepter of the universe is held by hands with holes in them. And therefore, the fact that Jesus is Lord and our Lord is Jesus brings us a great deal of strength and good news.
Mozart's Requiem Mass has a little bit about Palm Sunday in it. There's a beautiful, striking line in it that says, Remember, merciful Jesus, I am the cause of your dark journey. The authority and pity of heaven unite in the Palm Sunday Christ. And because of that, we too, like the crowd, can shout out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.